The Know Your City podcast is recorded in a live office setting, so if you happen to hear any typing, soft chatter, or doors closing, don't be alarmed. It's just the sound of work getting done. Welcome to the Know Your City podcast, where we talk about cities, learn about their leaders, and discuss the issues that are impacting our communities. This podcast is brought to you by LEARN, a nonprofit community development organization based in Los Angeles. My name is Azucena Favela. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues. Hi, everyone. This is Luis. Hi, Natalie is here. So welcome, you guys. Uh, Thank you for joining us for another episode of Know Your City. Today, we are joined by Maria Cabildo, also known as a patron saint of Boyle Heights. Natalie, do you want to tell us a little bit about today's guest? I would love to. Maria was born and raised in the neighborhood of East L.A. to immigrant parents. After graduating from high school, she attended Columbia University, where she received her degree in urban studies. Later, she received a Master's of Arts in Urban Planning and Regional Planning from UCLA. She co-founded an organization called East L.A. Community Corporation, a community development model that fuses grassroots community organizing and contextualizes real estate development and asset building to preserve and enhance communities. Maria was also a candidate in the 34th congressional race of 2017. Currently, she's a consultant with Fireflower Partners. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. It's great to be here today. Yeah, thanks for being here. We appreciate you spending the time with us. So, Maria, you went to some of the top schools in the country, and you probably had a lot of lucrative opportunities. What brought you back to the east side? So, um, so Azucena, you know, this is... Um, Kind of my commitment to coming back to L.A. is linked back to kind of my my interest in planning. So I developed an interest in planning when I was 13 years old. And um, I was applying to boarding school. And my brother was at Roosevelt, and he was applying to college at the same time. And he applied to an urban planning program. And I was like, gosh, you know, what's urban planning? Because, you know, on the east side you're not exposed to a lot of career options. I mean, you're exposed to teachers because you're in the classroom with them. And you're exposed to doctors because you go to the free clinic. I used to go to the Bonnie Beach Clinic. Um, and on TV, you see lawyers and you see, you know, architects because the novelas always had an arquitecto or whatever, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, and, yeah. and probation officers, you know. Uh, but urban planning, you don't see that. And my brother said, you know, so I asked my brother, he's like, hey, so what do urban planners do? And he's like, well, you know, they plan cities. And I was like, I was 13. I still remember that moment Mm -hmm. of like, wow, someone planned East L.A. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, there are freeways. Mm -hmm. I I was in City Terrace. I'm a part of City Terrace where... You got to walk really far to get to a library. You got to walk really far to get to any parks. It wasn't safe. Uh, you know, there were these alleys that were completely unsafe that we had to, like, cross to get to school. And I just had that feeling like, wow, whoever planned East L.A. didn't care about the people that live here. And I remember feeling really, really small. And for some reason, I didn't allow that to get me down for very long, mm-hmm. but I had this idea that, you know, if people could plan the city to make me feel small, to make me feel unsafe, then cities could be planned to have the opposite. And so I developed this interest in cities, and I've been like this, I've had this like, l- just love of cities since then. 
And so I am, sometimes I feel that um, I'm like the luckiest person in the world because I got to do what I wanted to do when I was 13 and come back to the community where I was born and raised and really transform it and and have the opposite effect. I mean, there's nobody that can drive down First Street and not feel pride like when they see the Boyle Hotel. And, you know, people... You know, people love to take their picture in front of the Boyle Hotel. And they have no idea that the reason it's there and the reason it's beautiful and the reason it's on the historic, you know, the, the Register of Historic Places for the United States is because of the work that we did at East LA Community Corporation and this love affair that I had with this building since I was a kid. So, you know, I've, uh, so I've been really lucky in that um, I've been able to do that. And so I, I always saw myself um, building up a skill set by going to these elite schools and then bringing back that skill set to have an impact in the community where I was born and raised. And I've been one of those people that's been very reluctant to embrace the label of uh, I'm a leader, you know? And so like when, when we were organizing when I was the president at East LA Community Corporation and the senoras would come up to me and they're like, oh, you're the leader. And I'm like, no. You're the leader, and I'm a tool in your toolbox. Mm. Uh, tell me what I need to do. And so I've always seen that accumulation of, of preparation and my, um, my education as, as a tool that I put at the disposal of this community that I just love. Mm. Maria, on your Twitter feed, you have a picture of you and Cesar Chavez. Oh. Oh my God. Apparently you raised $5,000 to bring Cesar Chavez to Columbia Back University. Back when that was a lot of money. <laughs> when you were Back when that was a lot so of this money. Was when you, this was when you were a student this there. Huge. Yeah. Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. Um, it was, you know, this goes back to um, even my, my life at, um, my life as an activist. So my dad was very active. And my dad was famously the president of El Club de Madres at Malabar Elementary, okay? So he was president <laughs> of the Mother's Club. So I couldn't help it. So, so my, I always saw my dad being very active. And my dad is a, was a master tailor, very proud of his, his oficio, as he called it. And um, he still found time to volunteer. Um, as parts of these organizations on the east side. So it was sort of already in me. Um, in high school, I was like the the one, well, not the one, but you know, um, you know, it was Exeter. There weren't a ton of progressive kids, right? So I was the person who was like circulating the petition around, you know, like uh, the, the war in Central America, or Los Desaparecidos in Argentina. And so it was just natural that I would be an activist at Columbia. And at Columbia, we didn't have Mecha. We had uh, the Chicano Caucus. Um, some of the other Ivy League schools did have Mecha, but for whatever reason at Columbia, we had a Chicano caucus. And um, it was during the second grape boycott. And the second grape boycott um, really focused also on the environmental impact uh, on farm workers uh, of the spraying, um, in addition to, of course, um, the, the other aspects of the boycott. The next thing you knew, I was like stumping for uh, to raise the money to bring them to campus and we needed to raise you know five thousand dollars to to make that happen and it, it wasn't easy it was like pulling 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 from a bunch of different places until we we finally brought it uh brought it um 
together and we were able to to bring them on campus and it was really huge because um, at Columbia we didn't have any ethnic studies you know we were so far behind like the, 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 you know my, my peers that went to college in the UC systems I mean we didn't have ethnic studies we very rarely had you know um, people that look like us come and speak so it was a really huge deal um, to bring Cesar Chavez on campus and um, you know, it was amazing um, to, to have that experience, to be able to meet him. And then um, it was amazing. And then, when I, you know, I actually, I don't talk about this very often, but, you know, I went to MIT right after uh, Columbia, but I wasn't really happy with the program there because it was a little more top-down than I wanted. And so my neighbor and friend, Chris Lee, had been Cesar Chavez's cook, his macrobiotic cook. So he so when Cesar Chavez would come to Boston, he'd come so that Chris could cook for him, and so we would just kind of like he'd like Chris would cook him his macrobiotic meal, and we just kind of like sit there and watch Caesar eat. <laughs> <laughs> but it was you know huge for us on the East Coast to have Cesar Chavez come out and just really um, you know inspire us. Did you face any opposition to having him there? It was tough because people didn't see the value of it. Mm. Right. And I really I mean, I had to go everywhere to find this the, the funds to bring them. And so, you know, I went to the Women's Center uh, and, you know, I had to convince the Women's Center and they're like, well, you know, we're really concerned about the treatment of women. Mm -hmm. And you know, mm. and uh, we've heard that sometimes, you know, I'm like, you know, this is really important. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, we were able to pull it off. Yeah. But we didn't have a, a lot, a lot of pushback. Uh, from students. But we did have to hustle. I can imagine. Yeah. And so speaking of hustling, um, you founded one of the most influential nonprofit housing developers in the East Side. ELAC, the East LA Community Corporation, as you've already talked about, and you accomplished a lot. Um, there's a lot of buildings we can point to in the community that have been ushered by your leadership, by the work of ELAC. Um, and you left a few years ago. What was what has that shift been like for you um, now that you no longer you're no longer there? I it it's been such a wonderful. Um, uh, thing to be able to um, to leave an organization that has staying power and so you know we founded East LA Community Corporation in 1995 and we really started with you know critiques of other of other organizations and one of the critiques I had and that I felt very personally was that there was this sort of tradition on the east side that uh, founders would stay forever, mm. and then they would eventually turn it over to their kids. Mm. And I was like, well, I adore my daughter Lulu, you know, and I adore my son Joaquin, uh, but you all know that Lulu would likely have been the successor, not Joaquin. But, uh, <laughs> but I didn't, that, that was wrong. For me, it was just like, well, you can't say you're about leadership unless you really build leaders and you create the capacity for them to lead and then the ability uh, and the space for them to lead. So I knew that I had to leave um, ELAC for me to stay true to um, some of the, the principles that I founded ELAC on. 
And uh, it was hard. And I think it's very hard as a founder because you're always like, well, you know, as soon as I build this project, it's time for me to move on, right? It's like, oh, after I'm done with like the Lorena Terrace project, our first NIMBY battle, that's a perfect time to leave, you know? Five years was perfectly okay. You know, it's like, oh, okay, well, we're in this like tough transition and we're in the middle of the foreclosure crisis. You know, it's as soon as the foreclosure crisis is over, I'm out of here, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so on and so on. There's always like something that you can stay for. And it was honestly with the building of the, 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 the rehabilitation of the Boyle Hotel Cummings block that I was really like, you know, um, this is such a significant project. You know, this is this project that, you know, I used to take the bus down First Street to get to Grand Central Market. And I, you know, just love this building since I was a kid. I'm like, what, what more? You know, it's like after that's done, um, maybe that's the time. Uh, and then there was the street vendor campaign. I'm like, well, maybe I need to just stay. <laughs> and so I actually decided that when ELAC turned 20, mm. that a 20th anniversary was the perfect time to transition out of ELAC. And at that point, my son was about to graduate from high school. So it was really like, okay, ELAC needs to leave the nest before my son leaves the nest because ELAC was born before Joaquin. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, it's, you know, at, at 20, 20th anniversary was a perfect time for me to transition out. And uh, I think, you know, it's something that I had planned for in terms of really building an organization that built leadership at every level. Um, you know, where everybody in the organization was involved in strategic planning, where, you know, all the directors were involved in the budgeting process, so they understood you know, that aspect of the organization. Every director was involved in the fundraising and building relationships with funders. So there were capacities that I was helping my leaders build over time to prepare them. And, and you know, I left a successor who was able to take over the organization. And then I stepped back and, and let it be. Hmm. Is there anything you'd do differently? You know, everything is as it should be. <laughs> There's always things you could do better. Um, and, um, you know, I've always, I, I didn't want to be someone who cast a big shadow. Because I think that if I sat in a room with my successor and people were trying to hash out problems, people would look to me and say, okay, well, Maria, what do you think? Okay, so what do you really think? And so I really didn't want to do that. And so I think um, there have been times when I kind of felt this pull to like be there. And I've been really disciplined and said, no, this is this, I built this organization and it's going to go in the direction that the resident leaders want it to go. Um, and, um, and then it's on the ELAC staff to go in the direction that the leaders want to go. Wow, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate how intentional you were about laying out those pieces to make sure that ELAC's still standing to this day and, and pushing that legacy forward. Well, my whole career, I've been very committed to developing um, anyone who came to me professionally, right? Because I didn't have mentors. Uh, for the most part, you know, I had one mentor um, who taught me real estate development, 
and then more recently actually now I, I've, I've acquired more mentors <laughs> um, but later in my career more in a mid-career and so um, was very intentional about building people's capacity and um, maybe they didn't see it that way but <laughs> I, I, I saw it as um, you know this is why we're making all these decisions together and this is why we're learning together and this is why you're gonna go to these trainings and this is why you need to build that relationship. Speaking of transitions, after working at ELAC, you had a stint in the public sector, yes. working with influential policymakers and leading other important initiatives. So what did you learn about government there and what is the role, what is their role in building healthy communities? I think with government, I learned so much um, and there's a lot that I actually need to share back with um, the people I work with in the nonprofit sector because I learned a lot of what we don't do well as advocates. And, um, you know, in government, um, you are really thinking of an entire, you know, entire county or an entire region, and it's, it's, it's such a challenge to really keep everything in balance and address the needs. And, and in many ways, I mean, there, there is um, not an infinite amount of resources to, to address all of the problems that we have. And that at the end of the day, really, um, government is, is really driven by the will of people, right? And if you're able to um, get organized enough um, that you're able to, to get government to shift in, in big ways and to um, exercise leadership in ways that it won't do without that, that little bit of a, of a nudge. Um, in government, I also was really impressed because I think a lot of times we like poo-poo uh, the bureaucracy and I was really um, impressed with uh, the people that I got to work with, you know, at the county and at the CDC. Just like really dedicated people. Um, different, right? They kind of like to stay within their bumpers, you know, kind of, you know, they stay in their lanes and stuff. Um, but just really committed people. And that was something I, you know, I suspected from, you know, folks that I'd work with along the way, but I didn't um, see as broadly. Maria, building community seems to be incredibly important to you. Um, beyond your work, you put a lot of effort in bringing people together or being in the service of others, as you just kind of described, right, in sort of these other positions mm -hmm. that you held after ELAC. Um, one fun example is your tamalada. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I like just recently you were building Easter baskets for, for kids in your community. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where does that drive and inspiration come from? Oh, wow. You didn't know we were tracking your Instagram no, post. Huh? No, yeah. I was like, oh my God, yes. Um, I, I just really value uh, community. Uh, community is so important to me. I think part of why is that I'm not from a family, you know, like uh, a lot of families, you know, se trajeron todo el pueblo, right? The whole town <laughs> came with them, right? Or, um, you know, it's all this like, big extended family together and my parents story is so different right my dad was so much older my dad is from Veracruz 
um, you know, grew up listening to Glenn Miller and all that, Master Taylor, so the guy was a dandy. And, you know, he meets my mom driving through her town in Nayarit, you know. she's He's 17 years older than her. And it's really just, like, the two of them in the States. Like, my mom didn't have family. My dad didn't have family that we necessarily, like, convivimos with a lot. I have, you know, I have a cousin that, you know, we see each other, Natai family and cousins. But it's just I didn't have what a lot of other families in East L.A. had in terms of, like, the backyard party every weekend. So I think what I do in, in community and, like, in my tamalada or, like, is um, kind of making sure that we have those those opportunities or I have those opportunities to um, – uh, to convivir in ways that I didn't necessarily get to, you know, w- when I was growing up. And, you know, I think this links back to something that, um, you know, I learned during my campaign um, was that um, people really want to connect with each other. You know, that there's this just like really powerful um, desire to connect and uh, I don't think we have enough spaces where we just kind of like connect for um, kind of like the purposes of, of hanging out and eating tamales together. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Speaking of um, communicating and the campaign, where's La Poderosa hanging out these days? We all met her during your campaign. Oh my God. For the 34th Congressional District. But what's up with her? Where is she? And can you tell our listeners who we're talking about? Sure. So I have, um, I don't just have like this raspy voice. I have a voice disability. So my voice um, doesn't get much louder than this. And so um, when I was thinking about running for Congress, um, I had just had surgery on my throat, and I've actually had three surgeries in the last 14 months, so mm-hmm. I've actually spent a lot of time trying to address my voice. Um, and I was with a friend, and I was like, I can't run for Congress with this voice. And mm-hmm. she's like, you know, Maria, it's like people with disabilities should be able to run for office, and people with disabilities should be able to represent um, our community too. And um, I really was like, yeah, you know, that shouldn't be the reason I say no. There should be other reasons why I say no. And so then I went home on Amazon and I bought myself this portable speaker who I'd nicknamed La Poderosa, who is, of course, named after (laughs) Che Guevara's motorcycle, uh, but also because she's, you know, so powerful. And so uh, I think La Poderosa was, you know, more popular than I was (laughs) on the campaign. Uh, like, uh, yeah, like our election night party featured her, you know, she was in the picture with me. And so right now she's just in my office and like, I, I see her often and, uh, you know, I feel like she's ready to hit the road again. And I was just recently in Chicago. I was working, um, as part of my work as a coach or I'm coaching these multi-sector collaboratives in cities across the country. And so I was meeting with my teams, and there were so many people in the room. There were like 42, and I was like, oh, my God, why didn't I bring La Poderosa? It would have been so much easier to communicate. So um, so she's there. She's ready to (laughs) Does that mean there's a... There's a possibility for a second run for office. Her to make a comeback. (laughs) Well, you know, I, you know, um, you know, I came in third. I mean, that's kind of a, I think people are kind of, uh, um, some people are kind of changing up that history, but um, (laughs) it's like, I, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, I did well. And I don't know, you know, I think that um, 
there's a lot of work to be done. I think there's a lot of difference between kind of like the community's vision for its future and kind of the trajectory that it, um, it's on right now. And I think to close the difference between the current trajectory and vision, it's going to take some leadership. And I'd be really excited to see some leadership that will help kind of close that so our future looks more like the vision of community residents. And, um, you know, I'd love to be able to get behind leaders that can do that. And um, and I'm not sure if, <laughs> if that means running for office again or not. We'll take that as a maybe. Okay. <laughs> so I love the name of your consulting firm. Oh, thank you. And I actually remember you were with us in our office and you were kind of figuring out yes. what to name it. So can you tell our listeners the story behind Fireflower Partners? And also what are some of the projects you're working on? Sure. Fireflower Partners. So um, uh, Fireflower Partners, I have a partner. Uh, Lisa Hasagawa, who was the executive director of National Capacity, which is a national API community development um, organization. And so she and I, you know, so Japanese American, Latino, and anyone from Bow Heights knows there's like kind of a love affair between Chicanos <laughs> and Japanese Americans. And so uh, she and I were going back and forth, and we were like, oh, we'll be Kabildo Hasagawa, or no, we'll be Hasagawa Kabildo. And then we were like, well, what do we want to do? And we had like this visioning session. Rudy was there with us, and we put up all this stuff, and we just, we decided like, oh, well, we want to be that spark that helps people like make a change to pivot to do things differently um and so we were like okay spark we'll be chispa okay so then we googled and we're like ah chispa's taken and then we're like oh, okay well chispa uh spark is hibana in uh in japanese let's be that i think that was i hope i got it right that was taken we're like really <laughs> and so we just were like spark chain and we couldn't and then finally we looked at the Japanese characters for Spark, and it's fire and flower. Wow. Hmm. So that's how we became Fireflower Partners, and our mission is to help our clients sparks, spark change that creates a more just and equitable world. Are there any exciting projects that you can talk about? That I can talk about? Well, we are, um, you know, our consulting, we... we really want to be able to work with nonprofits um, in the future. Uh, right now, we've been primarily working with philanthropy and with, um, um, they're not necessarily intermediaries. So uh, I have been working with a couple of local foundations on new projects that they are interested in launching. And so I help them um, you know, do the original research and frame and make recommendations. Um, we're also um, coaches to a project out of um, Washington, D.C., where we're working with these cross-sector collaboratives across the country, really helping them look at their community investment systems. And it's been really fascinating for me because the problems are so different. So I was working with a team from Peoria, Illinois, mm -hmm. um, where in this neighborhood, they're projecting losing 50% of their population in the next 10 years. Wow. And so it's like, well, wow, you know, what do you do there? So it's so different from ours where it's uh, everyone's getting crowded out and gentrified out of neighborhoods and we're losing 
are low-income population, but, you know, it's getting replaced by people with more means. So it's been really fascinating to be able to work with these cross-sector teams to help them think about how they attract capital into their cities um, to do it at a certain scale, and then to think about what kind of changes they need to make in systems and the environment to help that capital flow um, more flow where it needs to go. And I love um, the founder of the institute that we're working with she talked about how capital flows downhill, you know, like capital flows where it's easy. And our work is we're trying to make capital flow up mm. a hill mm. where it doesn't want to go easily. And so our work is how do we create a pathway for it to get to the projects that we need to get built uh, to revitalize communities and to really um, create, I guess this is my, my for me, not, not their language, is create projects that create an ability for people to stay, mm. right? So they're not displaced. Mm. So those are some of the things that, that we're working on right now. And um, it's been um, really amazing because I've just been able to learn so much and uh, I'm always learning, so it's a, I can never, um, folks that feel like, ah, I learned it all, I'm like, ah, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so much to learn. So now that you've, you've had an opportunity um, to be on the advocacy side of it, yeah. and then also you've had experience on the government yeah. side of it. So we think about the legalization of street vending. Do you have any reflections or thoughts that you would leave us with as the fight continues in this process? I actually think about this a lot um, because it is so important that uh, we legalize street vending in LA. Um, I think it it is, you know, it's the same challenge that we're facing around affordable housing and the siting of affordable housing, I mean, they're really, they're linked in some ways, right? It, it ends up being the nimbyism, mm. right? And, um, and it's going to take, I think, that kind of, like, organizing and um, to be able to turn elected around. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the thing I learned working in government was that um, you really have to think about what you can get your votes for, mm. right? It's um, it's that simple. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, wh wh you know, what what's going to pass? And sometimes um, when I worked in government, I really missed being an advocate because as an advocate, you could just be really righteous and not compromise and absolutely naughty. No. You know, and then the reality is, if you have someone, and I know that there are people, um, there, you know, staffers uh, for electives that are hustling, and I think that there's a, a desire to say, you know, they're not hustling enough, but it's like, well, you know, it's like you either have votes or you don't, mm -hmm. and um, and really looking at how you use your political capital, and making sure that you're not going to um, kind of, I guess there's that whole negotiation of how you use right. your political capital, right? And at what point, 
Right. And so I think the the, the piece there is um, just the, the need for more of the organizing. Um, because the thing is, it's like all the information's there, mm-hmm. right? It's not more data. It's not more research, right? Um, it's it's really it's 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 the organizing and the advocacy. That's pretty yeah. powerful. I mean, I, I what came to mind is: are there allies that we just haven't thought of that we should be linking our efforts with? Because it's all super connected. Well, I think that um, you know the other side of it, because my mind tends to go towards thinking about you know because of my 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 training as an affordable housing developer and and thinking about capital right and it's basically it's a system we have to work with and um there's a whole um you know economic kind of like a new economic system you're creating through street vending and so i think it's like looking at who are the allies there right because once you legalize street vending and i'm hoping the advocates are looking at this where are you going to accommodate all that commissary? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like suddenly everyone's going to have to have commissary space. And the system is already limited. Yeah. Right? So don't you have advocates, don't you have allies potentially there mm-hmm. in terms of like this space that needs to get built out? These are people that, um, you know, have these capital investments in commissaries, right? I mean, there's a whole, um, the whole food system in terms of like the supplies and all of the manufacturer. And I think, I mean, you guys, have, I think you've already looked at that in terms of like other manufacturers, potential um, yeah, allies as well. So I don't know. I actually do think about this quite a bit. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. no quiero ser metiche. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's the case. <laughs> no, I think you, you, you've, ex- you've been through, you've had experience in a lot of the sectors. Yeah. So how do we bring those yeah. lessons back yeah. to help it's continue important. the work? Yeah, it's tough. But that is valuable information to have, right? Like kind of that experience that you bring, for sure. Uh, as you know, this is the Know Your City podcast. Okay. So in the spirit of that title, uh, we want to know, what is one thing you would like our listeners to know about your city? It could be a fact, a favorite place, a good place to eat, something to see or experience. Gosh, and I haven't listened to all of your podcasts. So I don't know if this has been taken, but... Um, <laughs> The, the murals um, in Boyle Heights have always been really powerful for me. My, my favorite mural is El Corrido de Boyle Heights, uh, right on what used to be Brooklyn, now Cesar Chavez and Soto Street, um, where the Payless shoe stores used to be. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when I was a kid, um, you know, we would, um, when my dad didn't work on weekends, because my dad typically worked on weekends, uh, we would sometimes go to Sears, and we would like go down Indiana, and then we'd turn on Olympic. And so the murals on Estrada Courts were really powerful and really made an impression on me when I was a kid, especially that uh, we are not a minority. Mm-hmm. Um, murals was just really impactful. So I'd say, you know, in terms of city, the... You know, the Boyle Heights murals, I think, are a real treasure. And I, what I'm enjoying now is, like, the new murals that are totally, like, anti-Trump. I don't know if you've seen them. There's, like, one on Wabash that's really great that has, like, mm-hmm. Trump in a headlock. as a wrestler. <laughs> wrestler and Trump is in a headlock. And then there's the one over on Cesar Chavez um, where the Johnson Market used to be. Um, that has uh, Dora the Explorer, oh, of all things, yeah. like wrapping up uh, 
uh, Trump and rope. And so it's just like, oh, I just, I don't know. So those are like <laughs> things I love about um, my city. And uh, for me, uh, and I know people think this is really silly because um, I've had friends say that, but for me, the West Side starts at Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just to give you a sense of like my life. I'm like, oh, I never go West, and West starts at Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> Things matter. It does. Maria, thank you so much for your time and sharing your, your experience and wisdom with us today. Yeah, this oh, is a pleasure. Well, thank you. You guys made it easy. Um, I really appreciate what you, um, I've really enjoyed the podcasts because I've actually used them a little bit in my research. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, they did an interview with so-and-so. Let me (laughs) learn that. And, um, I think it's really great because I think that one thing that we haven't done enough is to really, um, document, um, document ourselves and our knowledge and Mm -hmm. archive that work to make it available for folks to learn from. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Very cool. Thank you.